Welcome to Upfront, the podcast. I'm Katie Hannam. I'll be chatting to a wide variety of people on here, well-known figures, people who can give us an inside track on the story of the week, or someone who has their own story to tell. The main thing is, whoever is on the other side of the mic, I'll ask the questions I think you'll want answered. And because we always want to go the extra mile, we'll also try to get a little bit more from each of our guests. Each week, we'll bring a list of 20 upfront questions, put them into a random order and ask our guests to pick a number. So they won't know which questions are coming up and neither will I. This week, I'm talking to Dennis Nocton, the independent Roscommon Galway TD, was once considered a future leader of Fine Gael, but this week he announced he won't be running again at the next general election. We opened, as is our want, with a random question. So Dennis Nocton, uh, you're welcome to the Upfront podcast. Thank you. Uh, now, obviously, I'm talking to you this week because you stunned the political world with your uh, announcement that you have decided at the tender age of 49 to walk away, to step away from politics and um, do something else with the rest of your life. So uh, I will be quizzing you very deeply on that uh, shortly. Uh, but first of all, I'm going to ask you a random question. So will you give me a number from 1 to 20? Uh, 16. 16. What would you save if your house went on fire? Probably my computer, because there's probably more on that than anything. So that would be the one thing I'd probably run for. <laughs> okay. We're assuming all human beings have been saved at this stage. Yes, yes. I, I, <laughs> presume, I presume that is already. <laughs> okay. 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 Listen, take me back then right to the start. Your first political memory, because obviously you grew up in a political house. Yes, I did grow up in a political house. So um, my dad was elected to Roscommon County Council in 1974. Uh, and my first memory would be uh, probably around the 1981-1982 elections. 1981 in terms of uh, packing envelopes uh, for the election literature and the election mail shot in my house. And the house was full, the kitchen table, the sitting room table, everything. Uh, bodies everywhere and I suppose then would have been outside the count centre and the convent gym uh, in uh, Roscommon town in February 82 when my dad was first elected to the Dáil. They would be my first memories I suppose uh, of politics growing up in in a political household Uh, and I was just thinking during the week the next general election will be the first time in 50 years uh, that I won't have had any personal connection with the candidates running in the general election. So it'll be interesting to sit back and uh, and watch it as an analyst rather than someone with skin in the game. Wow, so first time in 50 years that there won't be an octon on the ballot paper. Yeah, and it's, it's, I suppose it's a, a big change um, uh, in, in Roscommon anyway that there there won't be an octon on the ballot paper come the, the next general election and I suppose that'll bring its uh, own changes and dynamics with it as well. Okay, well, we talk about that as well in a while. What 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 uh, what the political landscape is going to look like after you, you you leave it. Talk to me a little bit about your father, though, Liam Nocton. He had reached like uh, the pinnacle, really, for his own personal political career before he died. The Cahirlik of the Shannon. Do you remember that? You but that must have been a big day for the family. Did you? Were you there? Oh for yeah, it? absolutely. And you know, he was absolutely so proud uh, of that fact of becoming Cahirlik of the Shannon. You know. He was, he was someone that, uh, while he had very little formal education, he had, 
I think he went to one year maybe in secondary school. He was someone who, as a result of that, uh, had a great love of education and instilled that in every one of us, even though he didn't have uh, a huge uh, a formal uh, education. But, um, you know, he, uh, while he didn't have the formal education, he had, you know, a very uh, savvy political acumen. He was uh, quite forensic in terms of his questioning inside uh, in the House when he was a member of the Public Accounts Committee, who someone was talking to me about uh, earlier on in the week. But he had a huge respect for the institutions of the state. Uh, it was a great honour for him to be elected as a TD and he knew the significance of that. And then, of course, his death was just so tragic. And at the time, was put down to kind of the madness of constituency political life to some degree. Is it right? Am I right in saying it was he was actually that car crash happened when he was dashing between two funerals? Well, no, he had actually left uh, at the house. He had been at a funeral earlier on uh, in the day and he had left the house. He was actually on his way to a funeral in Banislow uh, at the time. And uh, it was a Croatian on the wrong side of the road that, that, that crashed into the car. That man uh, was killed as well uh, in that accident. And um, yeah, I suppose, look, Politics was and is a, a tough sport, uh, and I suppose that may have been a factor in relationship. But look, it was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Can you remember where you were when you heard it? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I was at the uh, Young Fine Gael National Conference uh, in the Tower Hotel in Waterford at the time, and it was uh, Jim Miley, the Secretary General of the Fine Gael Party, uh, who called me into his bedroom and, and broke the news to me. Um, he was the the one that 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 had told me what had happened. Jim uh, is from County Roscommon. Uh, Jim's uh, uncle was a Finnegal councillor, and the two families would have been always oh, never very friendly. Uh, so it was Jim that, that that told me the news at the time. God, that was a hard job for Jim Miley, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, and we had to travel back that night. Uh, there was, uh, I think it was there. There was four of us, I think, at the uh, Young Finnegal conference at the time. Uh, and uh, we travelled back in John Bruton's car. John was Thishuk, uh, and um, you know his his driver brought us back on that occasion. Uh, you know it was uh, look we were all numb at the time, uh, and you know in fairness to him, I'll never forget it because he spent the whole journey back from Waterford uh, to Roscommon talking about football, and kept our our minds off things, I suppose, so to speak. Um, you know, which was a very, very difficult journey. Yeah, I'm just wondering. There was eight. You're one of eight, weren't yes, you? Yes, yeah, I'm the eldest of eight. Yeah. So was it always going to be you that was going to kind of pick up the 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 mantle, <laughs> or what? Because you, uh, you were in, no, you were where I, you were in college at that stage still. I was in college. I was doing a PhD in UCC at the time in 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 food microbiology. No, in fact, uh, yes, I had a huge interest in politics always had uh, probably would have more of an interest than the rest of my family uh, but uh, no I had absolutely no intention of ever going into politics uh, and putting my name in a ballot paper never in my life had I ever contemplated it however um, the government was in a minority situation in the Shannon it was in a minority situation in the Oireachtas 
there was the likelihood that if it wasn't a family member that ran, that the the government could lose that Senate uh, seat in the by-election. And so there was a lot of pressure put on me to go for the Senate more so than anything else, to try and hold that seat and hold uh, the government vote in the Senate, even in a minority situation. And um, the way I looked at it was that there was going to have to be a general election within uh, 12 months. And that I said, look, I take 12 months out of my studies. I'll give it uh, a rattle in relation to the general election. If I'm not elected, I go back to my studies. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. Um, but that if I didn't try it, I'd probably always and ever regret it. And, you know, at 23 years of age, why ever regret? Uh, so I threw my hat into the ring and uh, I've been there ever since. Uh, tell me, why Why had you not intended as in? Why Why had you decided before this this situation emerged and you came under this pressure? Why had you thought, that's not for me? Yeah, because I, I was never someone that really wanted to be in the public eye or, uh, you know, I had a graph for public speaking or that. But um, the opportunity was there. And, you know, as I say, why have regrets? I suppose some... Uh, people say to me, well, look, what would have been your ideal job? And my ideal job would have been to be chief scientific advisor to the government. That would have been my ideal job if um, I was in a, a, another dimension. Um, I loved science. I loved politics. I loved the, the interaction between uh, both of those. And if I had my choice of career, that's what my ambition would have been. Okay, so you took you took the the punt anyway. You 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 became the youngest member of the Oireachtas at twenty three, and as you say, went on then to get the seat in the Dáil. Um, at that stage, did you think, Jesus, you know, this could be this? You know, I could have some career here because I've, I'm coming at it so young. Like, did you then start to dream big? No, I didn't. Um, but look, I would, yes, when I was in Leinster House, I said it would be great at some stage in my career to be a minister. You know, some people have said, well, what about leadership? And as you know, I did put my name forward back in 2002 uh, for the, the leadership of Fine Gael and quickly withdrew it. But to be quite honest with you, no, I never wanted to be a leader of, of, of any party. Uh, but yes, uh, it was always in my mind to be a cabinet minister. OK, if you never wanted to be leader of any party, why did you put your name in the ring in, tw- in 2002? Uh, why did I put my name in the ring? Because I had been approached by uh, a couple of members of the, of the then parliamentary party and a number of very senior people outside of, of the party at the time uh, who had encouraged me to throw my hat into the ring. Uh, but look, I thought about it after putting my name forward and said, no, it wasn't for me. Um, I s- what, what was politics like that time? Politics at that particular time was a very difficult place to be. Like we had absolutely been destroyed in the general election before that. Uh, you know, Fine Gael was down to a handful of people. A lot of the high profile members of the party had lost their seats. Uh, at that stage, you know, and we really had to, to reinvent ourselves and all of us that are left had to really work hard uh, at it. And 
uh, between 2002 and 2007, like I attended meetings in every single constituency, every one of the 43 constituencies uh, across the country. And were there ever a time, like you were at this, you're still in your 20s, right? Uh, or late 20s at this stage. Like, was there a time where you thought, this is no life? I mean, you know, I want to be with my family. This is just not, this This is not any way to, to live a life. Was, was there moments of doubt? No, not doubt. But um, I, I remember when um, John Bruton told us that he was going to resign. And there was five or six of us around the table at the time. And sitting to my right at that stage was uh, Ivan Yates. And I turned immediately to Ivan Yates and I said, you have to run. Uh, and Ivan said, no, he said, I won't be running the next general election. Uh, he said, I had an arrangement with John Bruton. And once John Bruton goes, that arrangement is gone. Uh, and he said, uh, I'll be leaving politics. And I was envious of the fact that Ivan Yates, you know, was getting out of politics. And it, it sort of tied in with some advice that I'd got before I went into politics at all. Probably the man that had the biggest influence on me in throwing my hat into the ring was Dad's uh, election agent and director of elections, the former councillor, Tommy Hunt. And Tommy had said to me that, look, politics is now a young man's game. He said, my advice to you is to get in young and get out young. And he said, if you can get 20 years out of this uh, game and you can get the support of the people over those 20 years, he said, get the hell out then. He said, it's not a game for, for old uh, men, it's not a, uh, a career to get stale in. And I suppose his advice and seeing what Ivan Yates did were always and ever in the back of my mind. Um, but yeah, look, I had an ambition to be a minister. So I suppose um, I was working hard and focused on that up until uh, 2011. And then, yeah, absolutely, I had to reevaluate things. Uh, at that stage as to what I would do, whether I would stay in politics or uh, whether I'd get out. And I actually had at that time decided that I was going to run in the, the 2016 election and that was probably going to be my last election. OK, I'm going to ask you to rewind a little bit because we skipped over a couple of bits there. Obviously, you backed into Kenny uh, during that uh, leadership uh, contest. Then you didn't back him when Richard Bruton... Um, launched the coup, the failed coup, and you paid a, a price for, for uh, that treachery, as, as Enda Kenny might have seen it. <laughs> yeah. What was that like? Because Enda Kenny was very close to your family, was a very good friend of your father's. You uh, would have been very close yeah. to him. Like, that, that, you know, wielding the knife in those circumstances must, must be difficult. Yes, absolutely it was difficult. But, uh, look, I had lost confidence uh, in Inda Kenny and I had made my view known uh, to him and I felt it was disingenuous to say that I had confidence in him when I didn't uh, have confidence. Um, that's why I did what I did, you know. Okay, well, as I say, there was consequences yeah, for that. Yeah, there was, yeah. Uh, you, yeah. Were pu- you, you, were, you were knocked off the front bench. Then the 2011 election came along. And then the Roscommon General Hospital issue blew up. Yeah. You didn't really have much of a choice, really, did you? I was thinking no, about this at the time no, no. Uh, and looking back on it, in that one way or another, your, your goose was cooked if you had, if you had backed go- the government's position. Because you you'd hung a lot of your political campaign on saving the hospital. Yeah. 
and, and it wasn't just me that had hung a lot of my political campaign on it. Finney Gael had uh, as well, because you had uh, James Riley had given a written letter uh, committing to the emergency department in Roscommon. Enda Kenny had stood on the square uh, in Roscommon uh, endorsing that letter, publicly endorsing it. And Eamon Gilmore had gone on the local radio station reiterating it. So you had the Taoiseach, the Taunish, the and the Minister for Health, all three of them giving very public, unambiguous commitments in relation to the hospital in February. And then in June, co-doing a complete about turn uh, on it. So like I had got elected on a very clear mandate in relation to the hospital and I had no choice but to stand by that mandate uh, in relation to it. And I suppose why I felt so aggrieved with Fine Gael was I felt that they left me to hang out to dry uh, at that point in time. Uh, and do, do you think, and I've often wondered this, Dennis, do you think your previous history and more rec- recent history at that point with Enda Kenny played a role in what happened there? It, it may ha- have played a role in it. I, I honestly uh, don't know, but Remember as well, there was the issue of circumstance in that this was the first test of the new government. They had a lot of difficult choices uh, to make and they may have felt at the time that if they concede on this, uh, that, you know, the next big issue that comes up, they'll have to concede on that and and that the government will eventually lose its authority. Uh, And that may have been uh, the thinking to a certain extent uh, behind it at the time. Uh, but what frustrated me about it was that I had put forward a very clear alternative that dealt with the, the safety concerns that had been raised by medics while still providing emergency services at Roscommon Hospital. Uh, and they hadn't been prepared fra- to take that yeah, on board. Fra- Sorry, Dennis. I was going to say, well, Frankie Fian and Mothers would say now that Roscommon Hospital is a real model for what can be achieved with smaller local hospitals while sending the, you know, the bigger cases to the bigger, yeah, no, the bigger look, regional it, it, kind of the, centres. The issue of, of activity and yes, Roscommon. So what yeah. I'm saying to you, so what I'm saying to you, Dennis, were, were you wrong? But <laughs> in terms of, of the hospital being busy, absolutely the hospital is busy. Is it busier than it was uh, back prior to 2011? Yes, it may very well be. But that, that was never the issue. The issue was the provision of emergency services. Okay. So, there you are. It's 2011. You're out in the cold. Did you at that stage foresee that you were never again going to be a member of the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party? Yeah. Look, to be quite honest, Rich, I, I, I found that it would be hard uh, unless the, there was some movement on Roscommon Hospital um, to... to return to the the party and um you know that wasn't going to be forthcoming so yeah it it was god was going to be very difficult for me to return to finnegale and of course as well as that uh i knew that my ambition of, of being a cabinet minister went as well and then phase intervened again and you did get another get another yes. chance yeah. and and a cabinet position uh came your way you you loved being a minister Absolutely loved it. Absolutely loved it. And I loved the department I was in. 
It was a crazy busy department, probably the busiest department of government in terms of just, policy. Just remind us, so it's uh, communications, what so else was I, in that I, portfolio the, at the time? The Department of Communications, the Department of Energy, the Department, the new Department of Climate Action that we were establishing, the Department of Environment and Natural Resources. Uh, so like there were five very different portfolios there, all of them very policy intensive. And uh, look, with all due respect to my predecessors across a number of different government departments, a lot of the issues had been uh, long fingered. Uh, and I suppose the one that exposes how long fingered things were was on post. Um, I had uh, David McRedmond, the new chief executive of on post, who had come to me on the October bank holiday weekend on the Thursday before the October bank holiday weekend. Uh, and I had just been appointed minister in May of that year in 2016. And he told me that uh, on post uh, would be gone by St. Patrick's Day. The, the, that we would no longer have a National Postal Service on St. Patrick's by Day. By St. Patrick's Day. Uh, that that's how dire the situation was in terms of it running out of money. Um, and it, it would have just completely collapsed. Uh, you know, so that was one of the issues that we had to, to deal with at that stage. As you know, we had the bin charges issue. Uh, as well, which had blown up uh, earlier on that summer. Um, you know, so the, there was grenades everywhere you turned uh, in that department, um, a lot of which had been created because of, of a lack of decisions being taken previous to that. And um, we went through an awful lot of policy issues and policy decisions over that term, some of which are actually coming to fruition now with uh, Eamon Ryan as, as minister in charge. Um, okay, well, of course, things didn't end well for you in that department. Um, ah, look, looking back, and I was just looking back over it uh, overnight, the, the talk about the secret swanky dinners uh, with David McCourt. He was the sole uh, remaining bidder for um, the National Broadband Plan that, that your department was trying to get off the ground. Um, looking back... Would you agree that you you were largely the architect of your own downfall in relation to this? And how? Ah, uh, yeah. Look, that? look, looking back on it now, look, hindsight is a great thing uh, in relation to it. But I do know that the intention behind all of that was to keep the sole bidder in the process uh, and to deliver on the national broadband plan. Uh, he was the, the 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 last bidder left in the process. All of the others ha- had pulled out uh, and. If uh, Dave McCourt had pulled out, uh, we would never see fibre optic cable going into to rural homes. It would never have happened. And we've seen now, I think, is it about 30,000 homes have been connected uh, under National Broadband Ireland. That will significantly ramp up uh, over the next period of time. It will be delivered to every single home by 2027. Naturally enough, I'd like to have seen it happen uh, quicker. Um, but... It will transform this country, rural Ireland. It will level up the discrepancy between urban and rural Ireland. And I think will transform society as a whole, even to a far greater extent than than rural electrification ever did. Is that what you'd like on your political gravestone? You're watching Netflix because of me. (laughs) No, not at all. And in fact, one of the, the arguments that was being put forward was that, you know, this was about bringing Netflix uh, to rural Ireland and it was far from that and it is uh, far from that and I think you know people have a far greater appreciation of the potential of broadband in terms of people remote working 
uh, now and reducing overall climate emissions because people can work from home two or three days a week rather than commuting to work. I'm realising I'm forgetting to ask you my random questions. <laughs> Uh, will you pick another number for me? You're... Number 11. Oh, this is an easy one. What would be your death row meal, Dennis? Are you a foodie? Are you a foodie? <laughs> am I a foodie? I am a foodie. Uh, probably uh, probably carbonara because it's the one dish that my kids love that I make from scratch. So that would be because it would be bringing back good memories. Yeah. Okay. Okay, because that was such an easy one, pick another number. We'll give you one. We'll get one more of these out of the <laughs> number way. Number nine. Number nine. Okay. Tell me something I don't know about you. Well, I suppose I am a keen hill walker. Uh, so a lot of people wouldn't know that about me. They know that I do a bit of cycling, but I love getting out on the, the Wicklow Hills hill walking. Right. Actually, you mentioned cycling there. You had a very bad cycling accident, what, about five or six years on ago now? On the 2nd of January 2017. Yeah, a very serious cycling accident. Uh, and I think that my father was definitely looking down on me that day because I do not know how I came out of that accident. I was uh, on the bicycle. I was rear-ended by a car. Uh, and uh, I was catapulted into the air, did a complete somersault and landed on the road. Miraculously, the uh, I was clipped into the bike. Uh, I came clean out of the cleats. Uh, if I didn't, I'd probably have done very serious damage uh, if my bu- legs were still strapped into the, into the, the bike. And it was a, a country road. There was a car coming in the opposite direction. If I had gone to the left, I'd have gone into a block wall. If I'd gone to the right, I'd have gone into an oncoming car. I had a car coming behind me. I thankfully, had stopped. Uh, if it hadn't, in any of those scenarios, I wouldn't be here today. Sobering thought. Yeah, it was a very sobering thought. Um, and uh, as I say, definitely someone was looking, looking down on me that day. Are you completely recovered from that now? No, and I never will be completely recovered uh, from it. I had a uh, pretty serious back inju- injury as a result of that. I had a spinal brace for, uh, for I think, about three months uh, after it. In fact, uh, I, I lit up the, the uh, security screening in uh, the Council of Ministers in Brussels like a Christmas tree on one occasion with the, the steel brace uh, on. And I had uh, three or four security guys with Uzi submachine guns pointed at me um, at that time. But um, uh, I came through it all anyway. Did that uh, have any impact in your decision ultimately that you took this week or that you announced this week? Uh, I, look, I suppose, naturally enough, you, you reassess things. But I didn't really have time to do it at that time because, as I say, I was in a very busy government department uh, at that stage. Uh, but COVID, naturally enough, gave me time to 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 reassess. I became an expert at baking uh, during it. Um, so uh, yeah, what's your signature bake? I I could do a mean brown bread now, Katie. Yeah, I can definitely do a mean brown bread. Um, so uh, that was uh, probably consolidated my view that look it was time to to try my hand at something else the fact that i mean there's a lot of talk particularly for women in politics but generally that politics with social media the general political temperature is so hot now that is coarsened you know political debate and uh that 
it's just just it's a more difficult job than it would have been when you got into it in the 90s. Would yeah. you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Has that played into it? Well, look, naturally enough, it's something you take into account. And, and let me say, first of all, that what is going on in relation to women in politics, not just here, but of a good friend of mine, Catherine McKenna, who was the Minister for the Environment in, uh, in Canada, and what Catherine went through in terms of the online abuse was horrendous. But it's all of us. And I know that we all get uh, the abuse. And, you know, I think there, there is this perception, oh, well, you're a man, you're able to put up with it uh, easier than women. I, I think it goes to, cuts to the bone in all of us. But I do believe that it can be and is more vicious at times in relation to women than men from what I have seen. But we all have to put up with it. And that's why when I was minister, I was determined to try and establish a digital safety commissioner uh, because I believe that there was the need for that uh, policeman or policewoman, so to speak, uh, in that area. I failed on, on that occasion, but I'm glad to see that the government have eventually brought it in now. Uh, and I think that will help to provide basic standards and protections for people in public life and for citizens in general. So hopefully that will help to make a difference. But yeah, look, it is a factor that we all consider in relation to it, Jeff. What would you say was your worst day in politics? Was it the day you had to step down as uh, minister? That would be, yeah. yeah. It is something that I never wanted to do, never wanted to find myself in that situation. Uh, but look, the circumstances were as they were and I wasn't going to, to drag the thing out. But look, hindsight is a great thing, as I say, and uh, it was, it was devastating. Uh, but look, look, you have ups and downs in politics. You just have to dust yourself off and get on with things, you know. Um, now, the decision I made in relation to Roscommon Hospital was a horrendous decision, like, because, you know, like my grandfather was a founding member of Cumana Gael in the local parish. My father was a Fine Gael TD and senator, uh, you know, had been good friends with, with Enda Kenny uh, and having to vote against the party in 2000. Uh, 11 be expelled in the manner that I was expelled from the parliamentary party which was the first time it was done without uh, a formal motion and vote taking place you know um, all of that really hurt because you know these were my colleagues these were my work colleagues these were as close as family uh, to me and like when you walked along the corridor the next day and the next week you know when people that you'd been friendly with the week before literally shunned you that was hard as well. That was hard. Did they? Did yeah, they, they literally, did. Is, yeah. Was that what it was like? Yeah, it was. Uh, and it was a very, very cold place here uh, in Leinster House at that time. Uh, far colder than it was uh, after I, I resigned as minister, yeah. Uh, you said you were, so what was your best day in politics then? Oh, look, being appointed uh, as minister uh, on two occasions was a huge, huge honour. Uh, what will you miss? Out of politics? Yeah. Uh, in politics, it all comes down to having a minister who is prepared to listen. And I think sometimes we have too many ministers for fear or for whatever reason that will listen to the whisper into their ear from the civil servant rather than listen to the constructive proposal from the Dáil Chamber, either on the own side of their house or the opposite side of the house. And like down through the years, you know, 
I have been lucky enough to work with people like uh, Seamus Brennan, uh, uh, like Eamon O'Queeve, uh, like Brian Lenehan. Um, you know, Darrell O'Brien would be another man that I would put uh, into that category. Uh, Alan Shatter, people who would be prepared to listen to a good proposal, an idea, a good amendment that was being put forward and say, yeah, we'll do that. We'll go ahead with that. Uh, now, it may not be an exact carbon copy of what you're proposing, uh, but they were prepared to take on board the feedback that was coming from Parliament and, and implement it. And sadly, I think there's too many of those, uh, too little of those in politics. That's what I will miss. And, you know, after the next election, when I look on to the Dáil debates and I see uh, one of the few ministers in the next government who are prepared to listen we're prepared to constructively engage and I'd say, yeah, I'll miss not working with whoever that individual is. Okay, so what next is the big question? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Uh, like my oh, interest come on. is You must in... know. You must have some, you must have something up your well, sleeve. Well, yeah, no, look, my interest is in science and always has been and I think ultimately down the road when I leave Leinster House in two years time, I would like to get involved in something in that field. Um, okay, before I let you go, one more number, one more question. <laughs> number 10, my baby daughter's age. Do you have a phobia or an irrational fear? I don't have a, a, a irrational fear, but I have a phobia of heights. Absolutely, yeah. I've always had it and I remember the conversation I had with some of the colleagues earlier on today. We were talking about the uh, first offshore floating wind farm in the world of Scotland in a place called Highwind and they wanted to take me out to look at it uh, which was 50 kilometres off the coast they were going to bring me out in a helicopter and I was getting into a cold sweat and telling me about the journey never mind doing it yeah, it strikes me hill walking isn't a great hobby for somebody who's afraid of heights but uh... yeah like um, uh, Mount Errigal I've done and I've had to turn back where I haven't had the head for it but um you know, look, Naquilla, I, I do, uh, I've done quite often. So uh, the height isn't the problem. It's the, the fact that you can actually see the ground uh, a far distance away can be the problem. Right. OK. OK. Uh, Dennis, thanks very much. Very, very best to look to you now and whatever you uh, end up doing in the future. Thank you, Katie. And that was Dennis Nocton. Subscribe now to get new episodes on your feed when they're published. And do get in touch if there's someone you'd like to hear featured. On Twitter, we're at RT Upfront, or send us a WhatsApp message to 087 677 1000.